Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Hey everyone, I'm Ray Green and welcome to the first full episode of the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I am really excited to have Rick Corcoran on our first full show. Rick is, for me, Rick is a close personal friend and he has been a mentor and an advisor to me my entire career from my first management, my first promotion into management, my first real job. Rick has been there helping shape the way that I see my role as my my role as a leader, how I manage people, my views on you know emotional intelligence and organizational change, you name it, and and he has played a role in in helping shape and influence the the way that I look at business as a whole. So a little about Rick, he's a he's a former international HR exec who for the past eighteen years has been an an organizational development and leadership consultant. He works with executive teams on strategy, and then also aligning their culture to that strategy. His clients include private sector international companies, as well as many of the larger business and, and professional associations in Washington, D.C. And his, his depth and breadth of leadership experience provides pragmatic and memorable stories, usually delivered with a healthy dose of humor, which I hope comes through in the, in the show today. He brags that that every dollar earned in his consulting era has has been the result of a referral. And hell, that might even be true. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. So I think the the standard way of going about these these interviews is you kind of build up to a to a great, like a, a really great climax question. But I I really want to start out of the gates with the the question that I really want to know. And that is, you know, you've coached and consulted some of the most influential and powerful people in Washington. And how does a guy that used to call his neighbors and ask if it was the dump rise to that level of success? Well, you just get different numbers. It's easy, right? Everybody's got a dump, a dump good to go too, for sure, right? Yeah. I have it on good authority that this was this and, and calling the neighbors and, and asking if the, the refrigerator was running. I, I, have, I have it on good authority. This was a thing. Yeah, I was very assertive as a kid. You know, it's a, too many stories to go into at this point. But I take your, your question in the spirit of talking about leadership. As you know, I have had a, a really good career, a rich career, working with a lot of very talented people. And it's the luck of the Irish. I, I wound up in the right places at the right time. But there is, for me, Ray, a moment or a time, I think, really goes to the very core of your question. And it's a, uh, it's a profound part of my career. And I'd like to tell you that story and then come back and sort of unpack it in terms of what it meant and why I believe it's something that your, your uh, listeners may be interested in. And if we could maybe play this clip, it's a clip of Anita Ruddick, who in 1991 was part of an American Express commercial. Anita Ruddick is the founder of The Body Shop, started in Brighton, England in 1976, and it was my great fortune to go to work at that company in 1998. So if you watch the clip, it'll be the, the place from which I will begin my story. Okay, let's run it. We are a large company, nearly 900 shops. What's interesting about our products is the method that we have of making them. And the wonderful route I found is to look at ingredients that are grown in the majority world, find out ways that we can set up trade initiatives, and then use these ingredients in what we call trade not aid. I travel a lot. I'm in bizarre places. What I use for that is American Express. American Express is welcomed at the body shop and other places that are good for your soul. So what you have just seen is Anita Ruddick talking about this concept of community trade, fair trade. 
which has been at the hallmark of that company since its founding in the 1970s. Basically, it represents the idea that in doing business different from the norm, one goes around the world and looking at different groups of people in their practices around skincare and health in ways that can inspire products that are made by her company, The Body Shop. During my tenure there as the Director of Human Resources, in, starting in 1998, where I served in the Board of Directors, it was my privilege to work with her and the team in terms of leading this company that began with the, the definition that we do things differently here. There was a meeting of the Board of Directors and our international franchise partners in Singapore. And on the way home, flying back to London, 21 of us stopped in Kathmandu, Nepal, to visit one of the 31 community trade partners in the world. And it's the Get Paper Company, G-E-T. The Get Paper Company was founded in 1986 when a bunch of locals had an idea about creating a business of recycling paper and using different vines and materials that grow in the area to create something that didn't exist before that might be of interest to people around the world. Coincidentally, Anita Ruddick and her daughter were visiting in Kathmandu at a time when this idea was generating and helped these people, these locals, come up with this idea to create this business. And she committed that if you create this paper product and put it into the form of gift boxes, my company will buy those gift boxes from you for the holiday season in the retail industry. It's obviously a very important, profitable time. And so we will take the output of your business. You sell to us. We will buy from you. And they agreed to do that. And that relationship had existed for about 12 years as I become a part of the story. As a member of the board of directors, I spent most of my time in England. But whenever I had a chance to go out into the world and to meet our customers and franchisees and suppliers, I took the opportunity. So this trip to Kathmandu was a visit along with other members of the company to visit with the people who make the gift boxes for our company. The day that we visited was a holiday in Nepal, and it was, a, it was called Get Holy. And for whatever that means, I don't know, religiously, but people would go and they would throw red dye and red paint on each other, and that was some kind of a symbolic reason for being. So we were there, and we were participating with these people on their holiday and their celebration. And what's interesting is, in all the community trade partners around the world, the focus was on women, women entrepreneurs, women employees, female opportunity. So my experience coming into this manufacturing area, which is three Quonset huts on top of a hill, most of it is open air, old-fashioned equipment, but running and recycling paper. And the observation was that the women doing this work were impeccably dressed, clean. They brought their children with them to work, not because of the holiday, but every day they bring their children to school in the Get Paper Company, as well as their children are there when the medical community comes in to provide medical care for these people. So the company they're working for not only makes paper and sells it, it takes care of their family, their children, and their health. And in working in this company, it's not just themselves, they are committed to social change and responsibility. So they have a reason for being about helping other people in Nepal who are less well off than they are. That was their business design, supported by and inspired by Anita Ruddick 12 years earlier for me. The answer to your question, Ray, is during that visit, as I am listening to the stories, observing what's going on, the children of the employees would come up and their eyes were sparkling. They were well-fed. They were in school. Many of them, not just one or two, many of them spoke English. The second most impoverished country in the world's children are speaking English to visitors from the West. It was amazing. It was inspirational. But there was a moment. And the moment came when I looked at the other side of the fence on the perimeter of the property. There were children watching us up against the fence whose eyes were dead. They were hopeless. They were not a part of the Get Paper Company, yet they were part of Nepal. Those children's eyes had no hope in them. But on the other side of the fence, there was hope. 
And the hope existed because a woman 12 years earlier, when visiting in Kathmandu, met with like-minded people in Nepal and created this company, created a reason for being, created an economic sustainability viable organization, generously taking care of the families and created hope. That was one of 31 community trade organizations then in, in play in the, in the year 2000, in effect, that forever caught my attention. So when what is the purpose of business? What is the outcome? On your last day of life, what are you most proud of? To have been a part of an organization that believed in that, did it, and created opportunities for other human beings is a tremendously powerful experience because of the leadership of Anita Ruddick, a little tiny five-foot-two woman with frizzy hair with big ideas, a tremendous amount of courage and concern for the world in which she lived. It's a moment I will never forget, and I applaud myself at the moment because I usually break down and cry. It was that powerful for me. It's a, it's a powerful story. How do you, like when it comes to take Anita, you know, so she kind of a visionary, big ideas and a mission. The measure of leadership tends to be on what you achieve, like how you, how you take what's in your mind and that, that big vision and make it a reality. And so you have, you know, some people are extroverts, some people are introverts and, you know, Anita, if you're not charismatic, if you're not gregarious, like how do you, how do you, what advice would you give to somebody that, that kind of hears some of the stories of bolder leaders or more outgoing leaders and says, well, maybe that's not me. Maybe I don't have leadership. Is that the measure or, or is there something else from your perspective? I think there are two parts in the, the answer to that question. First of all, is that when Anita began this company, she did it out of desperation. She was practically starving. She had an idea and she created it from whole cloth, so to speak, by virtue of concocting stuff in her kitchen, taking different fruits and vegetables and mashing them up and basically figuring out that they're good, good for the skin and she was able to sell them along the way. So she had from the very beginning a belief around business can be more than just making money. It can make a difference in people's lives. But it was the germ of an idea in the beginning. And it grew as she grew the business. And because she had a big mind and a big heart, her dreams got bigger and bigger as she had more influence. So when I am making myself a part of this story, I mean, she was world-renowned. She had been on this American Express commercial. I believe she was on 60 Minutes at one point in time. But your question, Ray, is what? Not everybody is a need to run. Not everybody is as brave and as smart or as lucky, perhaps, as she was. And I think the answer is, if you open your heart, if you open your mind and really appreciate understanding leadership, like we're doing here today, you begin to look at someone, not they're better or worse or different, but you become inspired by what they're doing. You notice her courage, how articulate she is, her sense of humor her sense that there are no boundaries, that we can't figure out what to do as long as we do it together, and we share the values around the decency of the human being and so forth. So you open yourself up and you allow yourself to be almost like a magnet pulled into the aura of that person. And while you don't attempt to be them, you attempt to model some of their, if not all of their behavior in small steps. I don't need to be as articulate as her, but I need to be brave. I need to be thoughtful. I need to tell that story. And the ability to be around someone like that, and it doesn't have to be that famous a person, but I've had a number of people that I worked with who I tremendously admired. And I just listened. I asked a lot of questions. I asked myself questions. Who am I? What do I stand for? And then to begin to think about how do I do me in a way that is brave? How do I be bold? How do I let go of my own limitations and risks? How do I laugh at myself genuinely? They make it okay to be fully human. And if you're open to that, gosh, it, it can make a huge difference. And I think I was open to it. I think I was luck, the luck of the Irish. I happened to be there at a time when these things were happening and I was open to learning from it. And in many ways, it changed my life. I'm very proud of that time. And it was very, very 
heady inspirational experience. So you've, the body shop is a great example, but I, I know, you know, several of the other organizations that you've, you know, you've been involved with and consulted in, you know, I've heard some of your, you know, the work that you've done on organizational leadership and EQ. And I guess one of the things I, like, so the standard definition aside, when you, when you think of leadership within an organization or within a team or, or group of people, how do you, how do you define leadership? Like, what is it to you? It's a great question. If you go to Amazon today and you put in leadership under books, you've got 90,000 choices. <laughs> I mean, how good is that? Right. You know, where do you even begin? Right. So from the school of hard knocks, I have a PhD from the school of hard knocks. Right. This is how I look at it. The leadership is, is a bit the relationship amongst having a vision. This is where we're going. The second I would call it empathy is that does anyone want to go with me? in that direction? And why should you? Why should anybody want to go? And the answer is because they believe what you believe is a leader. So yes, I want to go here. Yes, I want to go with you. And they want, you know, vice versa. Everyone wants to go together. And the final one is, is doesn't require, again, any kind of sophisticated education. you got to care about the people that you're inviting to go on the journey. And they know you care. How do they know you care? Because you show them you care. You don't just tell them, you show them. So the vision, the empathy, the clarity of values and beliefs, this is what I stand for. And I will care for you on that journey. I will hold your hand when things go poorly. I will celebrate you when things go well. I will laugh with you and I will cry with you on this journey together. I've seen that in organizations. I've seen that witness on the battlefields at Gettysburg. When we use Gettysburg as a, as a classroom around leadership. And as much as I try and make it more sophisticated than that and sound more intelligent than that, at the end of the day, it is my experience over the course of my career that those three things are the hallmarks of what leaders do. Some people do them very well. Some people don't. Some people do some of that well and miss out on others. When you're weak in one area, you, you find someone to compliment and to help you to complete the leadership experience. It's always inevitably more than just one person. And even in my story with the, the body shop, like I talked a lot about Anita, I didn't talk about her husband, Gordon, and about the hundreds and thousands of other people that shared her leadership going forward. So it's not a solo experience. Leadership, and I don't buy these, these individuals who, who wrote the book and they have all the answers. I don't buy it. I don't think it's true. And I don't think, I think it's true either. Right. There aren't many self-made people. Whenever I hear it and you look back, it's almost an insult to the, to the people that supported them and helped them and taught them. I mean, for even sometimes even the lessons the wrong way, right? You, you're learning from people one way or the other. There aren't many self-made leaders that I know of. No, I mean, I look at some of the mistakes that I've made in my life and my career, and I think those are some of the more profound moments of learning. Humble, big slice of humble pie. When you screw up, but just look back and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I learned from that. It's a quick story on, on that in the UK. I was during the course of one of the, the transformational events over the time that I was there. And in the UK, you have to meet with employees on, the, on their councils and everything that you need to do has to be approved by a council in effect. In the process of managing one of the transitions, I'm an American in the UK running this transformation team. I made a decision unilaterally. We're not going to consult on that. It's such a no-brainer. It makes no sense. Right? Well, I was wrong. All hell breaks loose. And we meet with the employees every two weeks, three shifts, you know, a couple hundred people at a time. And I screwed up. And everybody knows the, the Yank screwed up. You know, he, he was disrespectful to us. And I knew it. And they were right. So at one of those meetings we had, I stood up and I said, now, I need to talk with you. Before I get into the content, I want to say this to you. I apologize. This is what I did. This is why I did it. It was wrong. I will never do it again. And I'm over it. I'm moving on. But I want you to know I'm humbled by how much I screwed up and I won't do it again. And I ended. So it, it was an interesting moment for me in that I could have rationalized. I could have tried to bullshit my way through it. I could have ignored it. Right. But I stepped into the arena. I took responsibility. And what I learned is. When you're working in a culture different from your own, you should respect that culture and not cut corners. 
and I should have known better. I didn't. I apologize. I forgave myself and I moved on. What did you mean when you said I'm over it? Like what did, what did, what did that mean? I forgive myself. I don't care of all the people who are watching this conversation today. You're all screwing up. I don't care. We're all making mistakes. And if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough, to be honest with you, all right? But when you do it, particularly if they're big ones, and this isn't really not that big a mistake, but it was public, all right? Forgive yourself. Get over it. The last thing you can do is waste your time. I have this idea in terms of blame, right? You blame yourself. So you turn around and you look backwards and you spend all that time thinking, I should have, would have, could have done something, which does nothing to move you forward. So turn your head around, forgive yourself in advance, and then what you take a look at are what are the offers, promises, and requests that are necessary to move forward in terms of our work, my work together. Blame is the language of the week, including blaming yourself. Hmm. Get over it and move on into the area of possibility. How do you balance that with, I mean, arguably one of the, one of the challenges, like if, you, if you're not great at leadership, like one of the one of the challenges is you're you're not probably not self-reflective, maybe not empathetic. How do you balance like the feed that feedback, like your suggestions with like, hey, don't blame yourself. Don't you don't need to ruminate on this forever with not being self-reflective at all. Like there's there's something in between, right? Well, if you're not self-reflective of all, you might want to get a different job. You don't have to be great at it, but you can't be blind in terms of doing this because you are going to make mistakes, right? And then why should anybody follow you if you're, if you're not owning those mistakes and you hide things? I mean, that's, people will go the other way. And they should. And they should. All right? Mm-hmm. How do I get more self-aware is a different question. How do I come to appreciate the gifts that I have, my, my limitations, my liabilities? There are programs that I went to at the National Training Laboratories. I've done a lot of work on EQ, understanding myself. I think you begin to realize that you are a project. As uh, people mold things, you're molding yourself going forward. And this is a part of a journey that you're on. And I don't think you're ever done. I don't think I'm not done. I don't think God, unfortunately, Anita passed away. But during her her time, she was never done. She was a constant state of of development. So I think it's appreciating the importance of self-awareness and that you do have an in, impact on people, and you have to own that. You have to own the way in which you do it. And, uh, and as I did, apologize when you screw it up, but just keep on going, keep on trying. People, to finish that story, I had a, a lawyer from the UK come up to me after my presentation, and he said to me, Rick, nobody who's a director in the UK ever apologizes in public. And I said, well, I just did. <laughs> I own that. I own that moment in that behavior. And to pass it off as, well, no one does it. Nobody apologizes. Strikes me as a sign of cowardice. And what did it cost me? I think my stock went up in front of those people. This guy had the guts to own up. And he's not going to dwell on the past. He's going to help us because the future was what I was helping architect for them. It, It all works out. You know, it's interesting. It makes me think that when you're in that leadership role, you know, you sit and you're looking this way, but you need to think about what you look like from 360, the whole of you. I tell the executives that I work with all the time, CEOs and others, you know, when you're at work, you're never off the stage. You're never. You're in the job. You're in the restaurant. You're in the the, uh, cafeteria. You are never off stage ever. And the moment you think you are that no one's looking, you're going to screw up. You're going to say something. They're going to misinterpret that. That's why it's tiring to be an executive. To be a CEO is very fatiguing. A lot of the guys and gals that I work with, with the common denominator, especially in today's world, they're all exhausted. They are exhausted. They're getting pulled and pulled every, every which way. So they have to be self-aware, take care of themselves, and understand that they're never off, off duty. And what advice, so if I, if I came to you and said, this is exhausting, like I, I'm on stage, I'm, I'm having to do this, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always executing, what advice do you, do you give that person? You got to manage you. You get off stage. You spend time with your family. You physically take care of yourself. You work out or whatever it is that you need to do. It's, you know, it's such common sense, Ray, that 
how can you lead an organization of people or a department if you can't manage yourself? Right. And to, to allow that to not a sense of selfishness, it's a self, it's a sense of commitment to others that I will be the very best that I can be when I'm with you here. I will manage that accordingly. No regrets, no apology. Uh, that's how we have to do it. And everybody does it differently. Some people read, they, they, they exercise, they walk, they do all kinds of things. Right. The self-leadership is like the first step in, in leading others. So the, when you, earlier you were talking about the, the leadership, the definition, and, and we, you mentioned vision, empathy, humility. And, and we've talked about this a little bit before, the vision piece. And I, like, even I kind of go back and forth on this because I, I have tremendous respect and admiration for people. You know, they, we, we talk a lot about Jeff Bezos and his shareholder letter, you know, many years ago that kind of almost predicted exactly what, what Amazon would become. If you're leading a team or you're leading a business and, and you're uncertain of what the future is going to hold, like is vision, like being able to predict the future or how do you define, how do you define vision? Like it, especially in uncertainty and, you know, when you, when you can't kind of, you know, when you can't predict the future, how do you cultivate that vision as a leader? I think when you have ambiguity, as you describe it here, what I would encourage people to go is to stop looking out here and look in here. What do I stand for? What do I believe in? What is essential in my life? What boundaries do I have, do I need for me in order to be fully present, fully human, and harness that? Sort of whole hug yourself and say, God, I'm really well equipped to move forward into this direction that's very, very foggy. I don't really know. But I know I have the, I have the resources to observe, to ask questions, to ask for help, to fail quickly and recalibrate because I trust me. I know myself on this journey. If you don't do that, you jump into the ambiguity and you're, you're always wobbly. You know, is this too much? Is this too dangerous? Am I going to get hurt? What about me? What do they think if I screw up? And no one cares. They really don't. So you harness that, and then you take in, into the ambiguity, you take small steps, perhaps. The idea that somebody's going to jump off the edge, maybe they get lucky and they don't kill themselves, that's great news. But a lot of times you jump blindly and you wind up you know, with not a very good outcome. So that's, you know, the smoke clears. There's a, there's a model that you and I have talked about in terms of transitions, endings, the neutral zone, and new beginnings. Endings are sad. So when something ends, you know, it's, it's fine. We're hurt. We're lost. You go into the neutral zone. And the neutral zone is the foggy part that you just talked about. But what you don't do is you don't stop. You just keep moving, exploring, never stop. Success, failure, whatever. And all of a sudden, things begin to brighten up a little bit. And you move into that space going forward. So vision is that I have an idea that may not be totally clear, but I'm going to be patient with the ambiguity. I'm going to ask a lot of people for help and thoughts. And just keep moving. And eventually it begins to open up. Certainly that was the case, I believe, with Anita. She had an idea and she kept moving and things opened up and she took advantage opportunities and, and she built a world-class business. I love that. But we can't, you know, we talk about Anita and Bezos and those are, those are exceptional people. And most of us aren't going to be like them. But we can be brave. We can be creative. We can be curious. We can welcome others into our, our area. We can be playful. I think this idea, particularly in today's world, where there's a lot of debate about these, you know, Steve Jobs and Bezos and whatever, yeah, they're special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ray, you're special. We love you, Ray. You're Joe, you're special. We, we all get that. Be realistic, be brave, and get someone to help you. Of the people that I work with, they always, you know, look around and see, well, who is there at least one person that a leader has that will close the door and come in and tell them to their face they're full of crap? And a lot of times they don't. You know, that's too dangerous. They don't, people don't want to come in. But great leaders that I work with, they all have at least one, somebody who will come in and tell them the way it really is. And they need that. My experience is these leaders they, who are facing this ambiguity that we're talking about, I mean, they're doing the best they can, but they don't have definitive total answers. They're figuring it out as we go. So the notion around being comfortable with that 
in relying on that someone else will guide me as I need help, as I will guide others. We're in this together. That's a sign of strength. That's not a sign of weakness or you don't know where you're going. All of us that have worked for other people, when you're working with someone who's out there and they're bloviating, are we not supposed to know they're bloviating? Are we supposed to be so stupid that we can't figure out they don't know what they're talking about? Yet they think they're a genius because they went to Harvard. Give me a break. Right. It doesn't work that way. So when I talk about that 360 thing, it's looking around and saying, how am I being perceived? How am I doing me in a way that's authentic and genuine? People should want to follow me because I'm telling them the way it really is, even if it's painful. Even if it's painful, they come to trust that I'm going to tell them the way it is. And the moment I compromise on that because I get a little bit too frightened, my brand and my stock goes down a bit in their eyes. To my story, when you, when you screw up, own it. You know, and if you don't, if you don't have people that'll call you on your bullshit, then that it actually it hurts your credibility in the long run because that means there are other people sitting in the room that know you're full of shit, and no one can actually say it. So the like, I just I just imagine from a from a leadership standpoint, you want people to tell you you're wrong so you can quit saying that thing, yeah, and correct it and move on and and boost your credibility. I imagine. I think leadership is lonely, CEO leadership in particular. It's a lonely, lonely place. You're getting you know, hammered by the board. You're getting hammered by your team. You've got different ideas. People's expectations are all over the place. And you're trying to navigate through what is in the best interest of the whole organization. Now, when you couple society, societal demands on top of that, it's even more complicated. So it, it is very fatiguing. And uh, you want help. You absolutely want help. It's the courageous man or woman that says to their team, I can't do this alone. I will, uh, what is it? There's a famous line that says, I will carry the injured, but I'll shoot the stragglers. We all have to get on board here and go from there. One of my favorite stories as a, as a CEO sitting in a room, I, I was concerned that people wouldn't, wouldn't give me feedback because I, I can be very strong-minded and opinionated. So the, prior to going to one, this one particular meeting, I looked at a guy that worked for me who actually shared an office. And I said, hey, I need you to disagree with me in the next meeting we go into. Like I, both for your development, because you're quiet and everyone knows you're a really smart person. So I, I want you to disagree with me. Just pick something and let's, let's have a debate in front of everybody else. Because I was, you know, this person and I were, were much more comfortable and some of the other people were fairly new to me. And he said, okay, yeah, I can do it. We went into this meeting and we, you know, I, I started talking and somebody else who I'd worked with previously too, but somebody else said, Ray, you're full of shit. No, you're absolutely foolish. And we ended up debating and fighting and arguing. And, you know, we got to a much better place. And I said, well, damn, like you would have thought I scripted that part, but it was, you know, it was, it was off the cuff and, you know, got called out, got called out by somebody else. And then, you know, the person that I asked to disagree with me was like, okay, do I still do it again? But one of the things I want to ask you about is on the, you said something earlier about asking for help. And I've, I've said before, if I could give my, both of my sons a superpower, it would be to unabashedly ask for help. Like when you don't know, just say you don't know, find somebody that does, you will, like you will accelerate your learning. So, I mean, it's just a, but I, it doesn't happen enough, especially in organizations, because there's this, there's this fear of not acting like you don't, you know, I don't know the answer. There's a fear of vulnerability and asking for help. There's the, especially if you're in the, you know, if you're the CRO or CEO of this company, you know, people are looking to you for answers. So am I, you know, are people going to lose faith in me if they see me not having the answer? So there's a vulnerability associated with it. What would you give to a leader that's kind of sitting in a scenario like this? Like what advice would you give them to kind of overcome that that concern, or is it a valid concern? Like, what's your what's your take on that? I think it's a human, it's a human concern. I'll give you a quick story, then I'll come back and try and answer the question. I was I was doing a presentation to an employee group in Japan, and I was coming from the corporate headquarters in Paris, and they were all English speaking Japanese people. And I did the presentation, and I said at the end, "Are there any questions?" And nobody asked the question, so I persisted. I knew I wasn't that good in the presentation, so I had any question. And I must have gone three times. And then I said to the one person who I knew who had been in HR, I said, you know, you know, Mary, what do you think? Sheepishly got up and she answered, you know, she asked something silly and sat down. 
And when the meeting ended, a colleague of mine who was a, a Brit who had been working in Japan at the time, he pulled me aside and he said, Rick, in the Japanese culture, people will never answer or ask a question in public. They'll ask, if they have a question, they'll ask you afterwards. But in that culture, you never call anyone out and they will never step into that arena. And I was a like a senior vice president. I was a big deal in that company. And this was a relatively junior person that gave me the feedback. But whatever it was about me, it was safe for him to come in and say, hey, dude, you know, you sort of blew that one. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. But this guy saved me for the rest of the trip where I stopped doing it. Right. And I learned. So this notion around learning, asking for help, not knowing is really just, a, I think, a sense of being open to you don't have all the answers. And who doesn't like to be asked to help? How powerful is it when the boss asks you a question or an opinion? What is the intrinsic reward for someone to be recognized by the executive you know, who offered or asked for help or whatever? It doesn't cost you anything, but it opens up this sense of we all are human, we all have questions, we all have needs. You know, and, and to ask for that. Um, somehow, as we get older and go up in the organization, we get infused with our self-importance. And there's a point at which we almost take ourselves out of the game because we're so vested in us, in the trappings of the leadership that my office is bigger than their office and that kind of really stupid stuff, that the people you're asking to follow you look at that and they say, really? Really? as opposed to coming down, no, I don't mean come down per se, but to recognize that, that you're as human as anybody else and you've got these needs and don't ever, don't ever allow yourself to lose that. I think ultimately that's, you're paying a very high price. Yeah, I tend to look at asking people for help as like learning at scale. Like there's only so much that you can do as a person in a number of, in a given number of days. So the best way to scale learning is go, is essentially you know, latch on to what other people have done because I, I can't read enough books. I can't listen to enough podcasts. I can't go to enough classes to learn everything that I want to. So just tap the expertise of, of people that have already done it for you. Jack Welsh famously said when he was in his heyday at GE, he steals ideas anywhere he can find them. Doesn't He doesn't care where they came from. As long as they resonate and they make sense, go make it your own. It's a gift here. It's a gift. Go take it. Right. I swear, I think this is your definition from, and it had to be 10 plus years ago. And it's, it's, it's resonated with me on introverts and extroverts. And it was, the definition was, and tell me if it wasn't you, but it was that an introvert can go be charismatic and can be outgoing and do the, the schmoozing. It takes energy. It exerts energy. When they're done, they need to, they need to recharge. They need to, they need to reset. And an extrovert, they get energy from that activity. So it's not, not necessarily the traditional quiet versus outgoing or any of that. Like you can, you can do both, but it's kind of what it does to you internally. When I think of leadership and like, how do you, how is leadership different for an introvert or for an extrovert or is it? At the end of the day, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you need to have a vision. You need to make it compelling for people to follow you and you have to give a shit about them. The definition of introvert and extrovert has really nothing or little to do with everybody else. It has to do, as you correctly define, how energy is used. I'm an introvert, borderline, but I'm an introvert. So when I do a presentation in front of a couple of hundred people, I like it. I think I'm good at it. And I am brain dead at the end. The last thing I want to do is to go out to dinner with five people after a day's worth of work. I want to go room service by myself and don't call me. I want, leave me alone. Yep. There, I have a brother who's younger than myself, four years. He's an extrovert. He works a group. He's very articulate. He's very skillful. He wants to go out with the entire group afterwards. He wants to sort of just sort of revel in his genius, right? And have everybody, you know, buy drinks. And without that, he feels empty. So to me, it's um, the classic definition of, well, if you're not an extrovert, you can't lead. That isn't true. That is not true. Absolutely not true. 
it's an abuse of, of the classic definition, which is why I don't like Myers-Briggs, because this gets confused all the time. <gasps> you're an I, oh, but you're so nice. You have a personality. How can you be an I? Well, because you bore the shit out of me. That's why, you know, whenever I have people who, who are like me, if you will, introverts, I'm more inclined to talk to them about what they are, honestly, as opposed to what they think they aren't. You're never going to have all the answers, all the tools. So take the skills you got, leverage those. If you're funny, if you have a really good sense of humor, use it. If you can't tell a funny joke, then don't try. Charm people or whatever it is that you your gifts are. Know, know what they are. That's part of the self-awareness issue. Know what, you're, what you have in your toolkit and optimize them. On some issues where you can, like if you need to learn another language, you do the best you can to learn the language. But it's hard. I never got fluent in French. I never got fluent in British English. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a whole different world. So I didn't worry about it. I just didn't. I had other gifts that were more important than my uh, linguistic skills. You know, it's funny though. I think the the more we talk, the more I realize because you and I, I mean, we've we've worked together and we've been friends for for a long time. I realize how many of my own leadership lessons have come from sometimes from exercises directly that that you've done. And one of that always stuck with me was the a workshop that we did with the team. And the, the gist of it was, I, I can't remember how you built up to it, but it was, you essentially asked everyone who the leader was in the room. And it was, you know, and, and in this role, I, you know, I, I managed, I oversaw the team that was there. But the lesson that we all walked out with was all of you are leaders, every person, like every person on this sales team, like you're either lead, you're, you're leading your customers, you're leading each other, you're leading Ray, you're leading. And that's, that always stuck with me. What is your, your message to somebody that's, you know, maybe in a, a sales role aspiring into leadership or something. How do you help it resonate to that person? Like you're already in a leadership role. Like what, what advice do you have for, for that person? There is a relatively famous Harvard Business School article called In Praise of Followership. And what they talked about is that all the great leaders in history, many of whom have different styles, have at least one thing in common. What is that? Followers. Hmm. What Kelly argues in that article is that the traits of a good follower, someone who listens, someone who follows directions, someone who comments, gives insights, and so forth, are, in effect, the same traits, good leaders. So a follower is, is a good leader. Is this by hypothesis. I can't think of a leader in the world who doesn't, isn't also a follower. Jeff Bezos is a follower. Different times, different places. The president of the United States has to follow, to a large degree, the Constitution and to the legislative branch and the judicial branch. So this concept of it's either or is fallacious, that there is a harmony. So to your question, Ray, about someone who's looking to grow into leadership, is my advice would be take a look at you as a follower. Are you a good follower? Do you deliver on your promises? Do you set reasonable objectives? Do you create opportunity for others? Are you kind to others? Are you fair with others, even if you're following somebody? And then to, I'm inclined to believe Kelly's hypothesis that I do think we've all worked with people. God, he's a, he was my best number two, a great follower. And oftentimes he or she is your replacement. So the way you get into it is to follow well, learn about leadership, learn about yourself, practice the art of leadership, which is around language, inspiration, creativity, self-deprecation, sense of humor, those kinds of things that the great leaders typically in their, their, uh, their repertoire. And then practice, ask for help. Ask, you know, in, to stay with your example, ask for an opportunity to lead. Ask, you know, could I lead this project? Could I lead this sales meeting? Would you allow me to run this sales meeting and mentor me through it? And you say, well, oh my God, look, are you signed up trying to... Uh, take away usurp your leader's power? Well, if that's your intent, you're sort of an idiot, right? That's not going to work. But you may tap into your leader's point of view that that's how you develop talent. You create opportunities for them to grow. And if I'm a healthy leader and I've got a subordinate who does that to me, I say, of course, here's how we're going to do it. And then I tell all the people who expect me to lead, when I'm sitting on my ass watching this guy, I tell them why I'm doing it. This is career development in real time right in front of you. I own it. I'm the CEO. I own it. I endorse it. And I'm going to watch Mary 
step into the arena and take a huge risk in front of all of you and in front of me. And that's what leadership looks like in terms of developing talent. That's why she follows me, because she knows I care and I care in public. And you can all watch and see what happens. How Ray that is so powerful when those moments happen. Now, the leader on his or her own volition may not think of that, may not you know, see that as, as I just described it. So if you ask and they say, well, you know, that wouldn't be appropriate or no, or, or you're not ready, right? They will always know you ask. So when someone says, what about the, does Mary have any courage? I don't know. Oh, let me tell you, she stepped into the arena. Okay. And in my experience, when I've had things like that and people do it, they hit it out of the park. They get the standing ovation from their peers. Not that they did anything that was just so, you know, unheard of. They had the guts to do it. And that's what they stood up for and applauded, the guts to do it. And what does it cost? Nothing. You said earlier in one of your stories, the, you know, the, the example of HR people don't, I mean, what was it? The don't say sorry or don't, don't admit that they were wrong. Like what's, that's the space where, where leaders go. They go into that space that's, that's business. You've said it before, business as unusual. It's that's if you're doing things the way that they've always done, that's not necessarily leadership. Like that's more, it's more on the management side of things, like keeping, keeping the gears turning and making it efficient. But, you know, when somebody says that's not what HR people do, and you look at them, you say, well, they do now that's leadership, right? Like going into uncharted territory is, is the risk or is, is something that, that leaders do by definition, right? Absolutely. You know, the shoulds, a lot of shoulds that should, you should, I I had a, a client in Washington. And one of the new managers came and said, my only role is to make my boss look good. The fact that my boss may have been an asshole is irrelevant. My job is to make him or her look good. And I almost fell right off the chair. I said, your job is to work together to meet the needs of your members on behalf of advocacy in Washington. That's why you exist, not to tee up or polish anybody's shoes over here. And this person thought I was I was talking trash. Like what, you know, Rick, you must be terribly naive. You must not understand Washington. And my feeling was, no, I understand it quite well, thank you. I don't know how far you're going to go when your reason for being is to make this person look good. If you do your job well, your boss will look good. But it's not the core reason for doing it. So whether it's in HR or in sales, I think it's an issue of clarity of purpose. Why are we here? Embracing that that in your thoughts and your behavior. There's nothing better than working for a company that you align with and believe in. So I worked for Dan and Yogurt. I mean, I loved making a healthy habit for life, which is what we did in my 13 years there. I loved working for the body shop because we were talking about values and in and, and a healthy way of living. And when I made pencils for the thir- first 13 years of, of my career in a family-owned company, I wasn't making pencils. I, re- I was helping children learn how to read and write. That's what I did every day. So whether I was the HR top for me, I loved the purpose thing. So as you think about leadership, I mean, have you created that sense of purpose for the organization? Are you living into it? And people can grow their careers by that passion, shared passion together that we're doing something very worthwhile. That is just so contagious. It's so dynamic and you sleep well at night and you go home and you talk to your kids. And, you know, what, daddy, what do you do? You know, I make, I help make this product that you love so much called yogurt, right? And they go tell their friends, my daddy makes healthy products. It's just, it's amazing. It's just great. Conversely, if you're in an environment where you don't believe, you don't care, you're not proud of what you're doing. You know, then maybe you're a mercenary. Maybe they're paying you a lot of money to be a mercenary. And I suppose that's a strategy for some people, but it certainly wasn't for me. I loved and was very proud of the organizations that I worked for and the people with whom I worked and proud of what we did and what we do for that matter now. It's like, that reminds me of the story, the, the janitor at NASA, like, you know, the, like, what are you doing? Helping put a man on the moon. Yeah. And it's a mindset, it's a perspective, it's, and it's, it's a choice you can make on, on how you perceive where you're at and what you're doing. And yeah. you hit on this a little bit. Say you just get promoted into this, into this leadership role, this management role, and you're, you're at an organization that doesn't, 
isn't necessarily investing all the, the resources into development. So it's, it's kind of left on you to go develop your own leadership chops. What game plan or what recommendations or what, what advice do you have for somebody that, that finds themselves in that role and they're trying to self-develop their way into leadership? I would begin, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, looking at myself. Who am I? What do I believe? What are my core values? What are my non-negotiables? Who am I who aspires to lead? Chapter one. Chapter two, I would, I would read. I would look for models in civil society. And they exist not only in your, your work, but in your church, in your community, in your schools. You know, look for people that others follow and observe their behavior. Observe like what, what do those leaders talk about? What makes them inspirational? And just find models, people whose behavior you can identify certain attributes that make sense to you and they resonate within yourself. Third, have the courage to practice. Work on clarity of thought, clarity of speech, storytelling. Storytelling is a really important part of leadership. I could have opened our conversation today Ray, with a litany of, I work for here and there and there and there and there, like the numbers, I could have done that. Or I could have told you a story. And I'm willing to bet that you may be more likely to remember my story than what year I started working for Dan and Yogurt, as an example. So numbers inform stories compel. You begin to develop the art of storytelling. And what is the story? What is the story of someone's, your proposal, why they should follow you? And to practice that. The fourth thing that I would suggest, if you're really serious about it, and if you can afford it, is to find experiential learning programs that are out there that allow people to dig into what I'm talking about and then practice, practice, practice in a safe environment. So National Training Laboratories headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, to me is the premier organization that allows this. Quick example, I've done a number of programs there. When I was negotiating labor contracts, I was too timid in one sense, not being bold enough in knowing how to bluff. So I took a negotiation skills program, three days, and it's, not, it's about the skills of negotiating proposals, counterproposals. And I realized in a safe environment that I wanted to learn how to lie. So in one of the exercises, I commandeered the leadership of the group. And my sole purpose was to manipulate, to mislead, and to divert people's attention to get to the objective I set for myself. And if I had to lie, cheat, and steal, I would do so intentionally. And I told nobody this is what I was doing. And I wanted to see what I looked like and sounded like when I'm lying. And I was blown away by the experience for two reasons. Number one, I was really good at lying which didn't fit my self-image at all, all right? So it scared me a little bit. But the other part was self-awareness that I know the triggers that would suggest to me that lying may get you to, to your end result. And I said, because I asked the first question, lying is not who I am. I'm almost too transparent. And in negotiation, that's probably not smart all the time. But I'd rather live with that then not be trusted because I lied. So that's an example of where I took a learning experience. I optimized it in a safe environment. And then I, at the end of the exercise, I debriefed with my, the people I just abused and told them what I was doing and why I did it. And then the feedback I got from them about, you were so convincing when you told me that black was white. So I laughed and I said, I got to watch me. I can't allow myself to be duped into that way of being. So whatever the equivalent is of people who think about growing into leadership, take risks like that. Learn about yourself. As I said in my, in my little soliloquy a minute ago, volunteer to lead something. Ask for permission to step into that arena and ask for help. And people will give it and they'll be proud of you. Leaders want to be proud of their followers that step up. But a lot of time, we're too timid. What if somebody thinks I'm brown-nosing, blah, blah, blah. My advice to people who are curious about that is to ask yourself, what is my intent? If I make a request of someone and it's self-serving, 
And if in your heart of hearts, you know, you're trying to draw attention to yourself, look at me, you know, I'm smart, let it go. Don't do it. But if your intent is fair and clear and in the best interest, everyone in the story, then do it in good faith and don't be shy about wanting to grow in this story. It's a great question. What is your intent? What is essential in your life? Those are really powerful questions to learn to ask yourself often. And it will keep you calibrating as you move down this path, oftentimes of the unknown. When you're confronted with things that are dangerous to do, if not wrong to do, you let them go. I have this game I play with myself when I had real jobs doing serious things. If I do X, Y, and Z, and it's in the Wall Street Journal tomorrow, what are my children thinking as they read the story? And boy, that puts you back on the right track if you care about your kids and your reputation, what is essential in your life. As I listen to myself talk, I mean, so much of this thing on leadership really does exist in your head. Who am I? What's important to me? How observant am I of myself? Do I really care about others in, in a meaningful way? Am I willing to, to open the kimono and to make myself vulnerable in the best interests of our relationships here? That's the key. If I had to write, you know, what is the key to all the leaders you've dealt with and seen along these, you know, more than 40 years of working, 50 years of working now? It's they are human beings who are open and they care. And they were brave. Bravery is uh, contagious. Bravery and, you know, it's by definition, leadership requires courage. Like you're, because people are going to follow ideally, and you're going to go into places that uncharted territory sometime. But I've, you know, I've always thought about, this may be a, a wacky thought, but I've, I've always thought about in terms of, in terms of leadership and people that want the promotion, I've asked people, if I give you the promotion without the title, you still have the same authority. You still get the pay raise. You still get everything else. Like, but you, but if you don't have the title, like, how would that feel? What I'm trying to get at, and in, in doing that is, if you're just looking for the, if you're just looking for the title, if you're just looking for the perceived authority, if you're just then, to me that speaks to what, what may not be the actual care when you're talking about leadership, like the actual genuine care for the organization, for the team, you know, for whatever it is, but but something other than me in the stage that I'm on and the position that I hold over people. And the title thing has always been a, a unique, a unique way of, of getting to that. Do you think that's a, that a dumb practice or, or what are your thoughts? I think it's not unreasonable that people would want the recognition that comes with being promoted and delivering on those. And titles are certainly one way to do it. The leader's challenge is someone looking for that. If all they're looking for is the title, and they don't want to do the work, then that would suggest that their intentions are a little bit cockeyed. But it's an interesting technique. And what it signals to the person to whom you're speaking is the value system around the importance of work and the creation of results is what defines us. It's not titles. The titles may come, if you will, to round out the experience and to provide you the status that you that you've earned. So as a technique, you might want to have that soliloquy with them and say, we will address the title once it's obvious to everyone with whom you're working that you're capable of working at this level. So it's the cherry on the cake that you have earned, which makes it even more valuable than just giving it to you anyway, for formal, pro forma kind of thing. It's an interesting way to, to deal with it. Yeah. You were talking about courage, and I want to just share a thought with you that because I'm terribly intelligent and I take inspiration from Harvard, you know, many places around the world. There's a, uh, my, one of my favorite friends are the Irish tenors, and they have this song called the, uh, the Isle of Hopes and Dreams. And it's a story about the Irish immigrants coming to, to uh, Ellis Island in the 1890s. And there is a part of the song that is beautifully sung by the tenors, the Irish tenors, but the the story is of Annie Moore from Ireland, who comes when she's only 15 years. The words are, courage is the passport when your old world disappears. There's no future in the past when you're 15 years. So this concept of courage, courage is the passport when your old world disappears. Stepping into that unknown. There's no future in the past when you're 15 years. 
So you come and you create that future where you are a step at a time. You bring with you, as Annie Moore did, her culture from Ireland. As a 15-year-old girl, she was the first person on Ellis Island. It's a great story. I love it. I love it. Would you perhaps have enough courage to try to sing that for us? On the first day of January, 1892, they opened Ellis Island and they let the people through. The first to cross the threshold of the Isle of Hopes and Dreams was Annie Moore from Ireland, who was all of 15. Blah, 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 blah. Woo! That's the current. <laughs> you know, that's the only, we're going to clip that, and that is going to be the trailer for this whole show. Well, I'll tell you, if you're interested in that, and if you like the, uh, the tenors, the Irish tenors, the Isle of Hopes and Drains, it's the first song on the album. And when they sing it, the, the three voices are singing it. And if you have Irish blood, you're going to tear up, I guarantee you. It's amazing. That's incredible. Last question here. What's one, no more than three, what are one, two, or three resources, like must-reads, like staples for anyone veering into, I want to learn more about leadership, book, podcasts, anything. What are your big recommendations, the go-tos? The no asshole rule. Mm. Professor Robert Sutton from Stanford University wrote a fabulous book called The No Asshole Rule. Mm -hmm. And I think leaders need to understand that assholes, by definition, strangle organizations. And so he talks about how to define that and how to, to manage through it. That's one of them. There's a book by Marcus Buckingham. It's a little bit dated, but it's still, I think, highly relevant. It's called First Break All the Rules. Oh, love that book. And it's the resource that uh, comes from the Gallup 12 questions. It's based upon the research that they did for that. And Marcus Buckingham is uh, one of the authors. And it's just so practical advice to people who are thinking about leadership. Anything about Lincoln. I'll even, I'll even get more specific. There's a new book out. I think it's called Honest Abe. It's a historical novel about the four years of the Lincoln presidency. And it's a historical novel. So it's based upon events that actually happened, but the dialogue obviously is made up. And it's written by a historian. And it gave, and I'm a big fan of Lincoln, has been, have been for a long time, but it gave me an insight in terms of what the man did and how he suffered during the course of the war and how so many people let him down. General McClellan and all people let him down in ways, but he never lost his eye on the prize. He never compromised when it would have been an easy solution to end the war on a compromise, but as opposed to maintaining the integrity of the, of the, um, of the country. So probably anything about Lincoln, but this is an easy read. It's relatively new. And it just inspired me to be really inspired about uh, a guy I've always cared about. And I'll end on this, this thought for you. When I finished graduate school, was broke and started my career. My wife made for me a burlap sign with my favorite quote from Lincoln. And she'd cut out colorful letters. So you, you're too young to remember that, but that was a big deal back in the 70s. And the quote was from Lincoln is to, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men. Hmm. And for, I bet the first, I think when I went to Paris, I left in the United States. But for the first 20 years of my career, that burlap bag sat behind me in my office. And people would come in and they want to bitch about something was wrong. Their boss is an idiot. Somebody hurt them. And while they're talking to me, they're saying to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men. Oh, that's incredible. So when I would get to the point of now, okay, Sherlock, now what do you want to do with your problem? I would oftentimes didn't say a word. Oh, that's incredible. That is a great, great quote, but a great, great way of presenting it like in terms of displaying my values and, and what I want. Yeah. What a great, what a great action. Well, I appreciate you, you being on the show, especially this, this inaugural kind of kickoff of it. And I will tell you, this is as you, even as you're talking, the emotional intelligence stuff, the Marcus Buckingham, the no asshole rule. And just in this whole conversation, I've realized, holy shit, like a lot of what I think about leadership has come from working with you for 15 years. Like it's, it's, it's really incredible. And I, I appreciate, 
you know, all everything that you've, you've taught me and now having a show to, to help, you know, share it with other people. So I'm like tremendously appreciative of your experience and wisdom and willing to, to share it in the candor and, and fun in which you, which you deliver it. So I thank you for being on today. One final thought to you and your, to your listeners is this, a company without money can borrow it. A company without leadership is bankrupt. Mm, it's gold. Yeah, it is. Where can, if people want to find out a little bit more about Rick Corcoran, where can they, where can they go? Where do you want to send them? I have a website. It's RJ Corcoran and associates.com. However, I haven't updated it since 2008, but it does tell my story about how I, um, what I did, how I got to do this. And it does have a section in which you might find interesting in terms of values, what's essential, what I think I stand for. I didn't update it over the years because people who want to work with me would never find me on the web. It's all by referral. And so I got lazy. I just didn't update it because I didn't need to. And I didn't starve. Lazy or efficient. Like no sense in updating a thing that's not necessary for the yeah. for the business development. So and I'm at a point now where I'm not looking for work, so I'll leave it there for vanity reasons, if nothing else. Well, I used to be important. Look at my website. Well, I appreciate your time. Appreciate being on the show, and we will uh, we will kick it off here. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Continue good luck with that, what I think is a fabulous idea. Well done. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.